As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Michael Schumacher won so many races in 2004 that it was quite difficult to make any of them stand out. But he and Ferrari certainly achieved that at the French Grand Prix, where he famously adopted a unique four-stop strategy to outfox Fernando Alonso's Renault team. Second place to the dominant Schumacher-Ferrari combination wasn't a bad return at Renault's home race, although there was a sucker punch two corners from the end when Jarno Trulli lost the final step on the podium to Rubens Barrichello, which was the last time Trulli scored points for the team before he was let go later in the year. This was a massive weekend for off-track drama in F1 as well, with FIA President Max Mosley announcing he was stepping down, but not before he started a process to force the teams to slow the cars down for 2005 on the grounds of safety, which at the time he hoped would be his final act as president. How wrong he was. I'm Gleb Freeman and joining me for this episode of Bring Back V10s are Mark Hughes, who was there that weekend in France, and Scott Mitchell. So we've effectively got the A-team from the Race F1 podcast, and I guess we should have got Ed Straw in to host this one, really. But Mark, Ed's not here, so I'll ask the questions. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think back to that weekend in Manicor? Um, It was known coming in that this could be a tricky race for Ferrari so there's a sense of excitement um, Magnico is very very much a Michelin track uh, Michelin even did the, the surface for it the asphalt was, was a, a Michelin sort of chemical compound and um, there was this sort of rising excitement particularly about the Renault team and in, in this because it was such a Ferrari dominant season, you know, you when when you get a, the prospect of something that might just change the pattern a little bit, just for once, and just relieve the, just to give it a different feel and pattern to the normal race of the weekend, there was there was hope. But I think that it was generally assumed that actually it's probably nothing. We're probably getting excited about nothing, um, and that was very much the feeling coming into that weekend. Yeah, a rare dose of optimism that Ferrari might have a challenge and Scott what stands out for you it's it's always I think possibly the most incompetent bit of last lap defensive driving from a top line driver that I definitely saw at the time and I remember um, this was peak era for me of you know really getting excited about Formula One and, and following every race 
religiously and and just being properly invested in it. And I'm I'm 99% sure what happened on the last lap here in the fight for third, which I, we can get into in a bit more detail later on, is the first time I ever got genuinely outraged and perplexed at what a driver was actually playing at. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the final part of this episode. So, uh, but I doubt anyone who's listening uh, hasn't worked out what your cryptic messages are about. Let's... Michael Schumacher's strategy. Yeah, quite. Uh, <laughs> I think we're about to give it away anyway, because let's hear some suggestions from our audience as well. Thank you again so much to everyone who responds when I ask this question on Twitter. It's incredible how many we have to choose from each time. Understandably, lots of you went for Michael Schumacher's four-stop strategy, including uh, Rishi, Darren Bentley, Ashley Woodhouse, Dre Harrison, hello Dre, and Road Beef, who said it was reminiscent of Schumacher's three-stop charge in Hungary in 1998. Richard Crossan and Piston Rod F1 both mentioned that this was Schumacher's seventh win in 11 races in France. Uh, Cam de Bastiani says, The sunburn I got from sitting in the grandstands just before the Adelaide hairpin. I always like hearing the stories from those of you who are at these races. Uh, but let's get into Scott's uh, one next, which is Rubens Barrichello mugging Jarno Trulli at the, uh, pretty much the final corner. We had plenty of those, including from Nick Carter, Gareth Jenkins, Matt Knopp, Adrian King and Mike Noon, who had just come home from hospital as a six year old, he tells us. Uh, there were a few shout outs for the debut of the McLaren MP419B that would change the team's fortunes after a disastrous First half of the season, Ansi Rulamo chose that, as did Jord, who said nine-year-old me spent the first half of that season in disbelief at how hard McLaren fell from 2003 to 04. Roland says uh, the speed of the B-spec McLaren and both BM84 and Joe Moore said they thought David Coulthard's third place on the grid might mean he was back to his best. Thank you as well to everyone who's been sending in questions for the end of our series. You can submit them using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or email BringBackV10s at the-race.com. I've seen a lot coming into that inbox recently, which is good news. So plenty to go through there. We've not plugged any of our five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts for a while. So let's catch up on a few of those. Thank you to Bahuni, Kev has an iPhone, CDP1975, PWG69, Ben Roos or Royce08 and D Baker 2112. Uh, make sure you check out the Bring Back V10's merchandise range at shop.the-race.com. And if you'd like to get early access to ad-free episodes, check out the Race Members Club. To find out more and to sign up, head to the-race.com forward slash members club. And as if our plug section of these episodes isn't long enough, we've got something new to tell you about. Bringback V10s now has its own Twitter community. If you don't know what that is, look for the communities button on your Twitter app and search for Bringback V10s and you'll find a dedicated group where you can discuss whatever you like about the V10 era with fellow fans who love those years just as much as you do. And uh, Ed and I are in that group as well, so you'll occasionally hear from us. Now, when we kick these episodes off by setting the scene, we usually look at the very top of the championship first. But as this is 2004 and we know Michael Schumacher was cruising to another title, let's start with the battle for best of the rest behind Ferrari. At this point, Renault were eight points clear of BAR in the Constructors' Championship. However, Renault were heading to their home race off the back of a tough North American double header, where they'd only scored five points, while BAR had picked up 12 in Canada and USA. This is under the old point system, of course, with 10 for a win. 
Renault team boss Flavio Briatore warned that the teams chasing Renault, which he identified as BAR, Williams and McLaren, were not standing still. But he said finishing in the top three in the championship would be mission accomplished for Renault. Fernando Alonso said it was a surprise for Renault to be second, while Jarno Trulli, who was the only driver other than Schumacher to win so far in 2004, Jarno was targeting getting ahead of BAR's Jensen Button to take third in the driver's standings, although he felt that BAR were now stronger than Renault in some areas. BAR team boss David Richards promised that his team had some very big things coming, and he said while he never expected Williams and McLaren to drop off the way they had in 2004, you take what's given to you, and he said this was a chance that BAR had to capitalise on. So Scott, how would you assess at this point in 2004 the battle between BAR and Renault? Renault had won a race, but both of its drivers, it must be said, were behind Button in the championship. This probably won't be the first time I disagree with something Jano Trulli has either said or done this weekend on this uh, on this episode. You've really got it in for him already, I can tell. <laughs> um, I slightly disagree with like, like that sentiment of like would that BAR were now stronger in some areas than than Renault because my feeling I remember at, at, at the time and also sort with the benefit of hindsight is that BAR was the faster package. Renault had peaked with with that win, but. I remember like Monaco, for example, and thinking that that's just not fair. Why, why have Renault and Trulli been the ones that have won a race when BAR and Button have been the better package overall? But like, that's somehow just how it goes, right? It's right place, right time versus sort of what is quote unquote merited. Um, but in that balance of the in, in the fight between BAR and Renault, it was obviously a huge opportunity created by McLaren and Williams underperforming. And I think BAR and Renault both knew it. So... They were obviously on trajectories that they hoped would take them into that lead fight consistently anyway, but this was a chance almost to to leapfrog two teams that the, the previous year they probably would have thought it would have been beneficial to just be trying to challenge them in 2004, let alone have a almost free pass to fight for second in the Constructors' Championship uh, and third in the Drivers' Championship, which Button and the two Renault drivers were, were going after. And I think given the season that Ferrari was having, the best of the rest on was quite a big prize. So it was obviously very much sought after. But I think the key factor at this stage was reliability. Obviously, Takuma Sato's season was was being ruined. He, I know he wasn't um, necessarily at the peak of his powers all the time, but he had an incredible run of unreliability. So I feel like BAR at its peak, especially with Button, was half a step ahead of the Renaults in on balance over the course of the season which is why it was button leading the way in the drivers championship in that fight but Renault were basically metronomic I think with the exception of was it Canada that was an absolute nightmare for for that team I think they always had a car in the top five so it was a fascinating battle and going into this one both teams I think were promising upgrades and developments not just for that weekend but subsequent weekend so I know it's annoying when you don't have a title fight to, to look after, but it, at least the fight for second. So it wasn't just you were having to look down to eighth and ninth for some fun. Like best of the rest battle was actually really nicely poised. That's a good point. I uh, I did some work experience at Autosport uh, in the middle of 2004 and they gave me what their back page column at that point was something called Why I Love. And uh, they gave that to me to, for me to do on my first day there. I think it was just so I'd leave everybody alone uh, on a press day. <laughs> And I, I did a thing that was basically saying the 2004 F1 season behind Michael Schumacher is really good. And uh, they basically turned it into why I would love F1 without Michael Schumacher. 
Um, which, <laughs> which I got some grief for when uh, I went to my next kart race and everyone had Autosport and saw my name in the back and then tried to defend Michael Schumacher. But that's uh, an argument for a, another day. But you mentioned Sato there. And let's look at him a bit closer because ahead of the French Grand Prix, Button stressed the importance of BAR having two cars right up the front, saying, if one guy scores all the podiums and the other doesn't finish, it's not good. If we are third and fourth or second and third, it will make a huge difference to our championship. This could be interpreted two ways. It could be a dig at Sato or, as Scott mentioned, highlighting the poor reliability record in BAR's second car. Sato had retired from five of the first nine races of engine failures and he would suffer another one in France. But David Richards told Autosport that the team were trying to calm Sato down in the car, saying Takuma was like many young people who try very hard and don't realise the extent of their talent and the equipment they've got. Just by slowing down a little and taking the edge off things, they can be even better. And Richards said that BAR were supporting, not condemning Sato, and he expected him to respond well to the pep talk. Mark Scott mentioned in his answer that Sato perhaps wasn't always operating at, at the peak or at his peak. The 2004 BAR was undoubtedly the best F1 car Takuma ever drove. Did he get the most out of it very often? Um, not really, no. He was um, he was quick, but patchily so. And this it wasn't just um, technique in the car, but it's also sometimes his... Um, his behaviour in in race situations, wheel to wheel, he, he could sometimes get a bit leery and untidy, and he had a bit of a reputation with the other drivers. I remember, uh, truly in particular, was very upset with them at the Nurburgring when they um, they clashed, and um, y- yeah, he was he'd been fantastic in F three, and you know, talking to his teammate from the time, Anthony Davison, he said he's, he's still thinks he might be the quickest F3 driver there's ever been but it was a very very he, he was he was fantastic at taking a lot of speed into the corner um, and, and uh, that wasn't really the trait that the V10 era cars rewarded particularly well it was um, it, it was more about how you used the power and when you were able to get on it and uh, yeah I don't think at that stage he was although he was quite um technical in, in, in terms of his um, interest in the technology of the car and how everything worked um, I think probably with a uh, another year or so of, of coaching and um, sort of stepping back and, and, and looking at he, he could have become you know I think a, a really really top level Formula 1 driver um, but at that stage I, I don't think he was quite there yet and maybe the Maybe the good car came along uh, maybe a year or two too early for him. Let's not overlook Ferrari then, who were blowing everyone away in 2004. Aside from Monaco, which was won by Trulli, and we've covered that in a previous series, Schumacher had won every race, and Ferrari had more than double the points of Renault in the Constructors' Championship. Schumacher said ahead of the French GP that he couldn't have imagined a season like this in his wildest dreams. He said he thought it would be the opposite and would be a really close season. And he acknowledged that a lot of people felt Ferrari had created what Michael called an intentional misunderstanding when they suggested at the launch of the F2004 that it might be a close season. But he also felt that he saw nothing in pre-season that suggested Ferrari was so far ahead either. Mark, what was behind Ferrari's dominance in 2004? Did they really catch themselves out by being so good or 
as Scott mentioned, was the competitive picture skewed by McLaren and Williams dropping the ball, having pushed Ferrari so hard in 2003? Yeah, there was there was a few elements to this. There was, yes, definitely Williams and McLaren underdelivered. McLaren didn't do the car that Adrian Newey had originally wanted to do, which was the, the one that ended up debuting debut at this race. Um, Williams had just gone off on completely the wrong direction aerodynamically. So there, there was two cars sort of, you know, that would have normally been expected to be a much stronger challenge taken out of the equation. There was that. There was also the fact that Ferrari in 2003 had had a, a regulation change imposed upon them at the 11th hour that really worked against them, and that was um, Park Fermi qualifying. So they'd conceived a car um, which... Well, it was it was a long long wheelbase car, and it had a lot of the weight on the back. But the the idea back then would, was before Park Fermi qualifying, you could change the weight distribution for qualifying and have it more towards the front, and then you get the front tires up to temperature, and it you know it worked. But they couldn't do that with Park Fermi qualifying, so they had a they had a car that was compromised in two thousand and three. So two thousand and four was the first time that Ferrari did a car tailor made for Park Fermi qualifying. So in a sense, you were seeing where they really were and it was in very similar to where they'd been in 2002 and it was 2003 that was the outlier um and finally in terms of um not then there not being any particular sign there was one the, the final test i think it was at imola where bridgestone had been knowing that ferrari had got this um car where they could have the correct weight distribution for the tires they'd been um developing two t- um families of construction and um, uh, some new compounds. And the final test pre-season at Imola, I think it was Imola, they finally brought together their chosen construction and compound, and it was absolutely dynamite. And that was the first time it had been seen. And because it hadn't, the times hadn't looked like that all the way through the season, but then it was just this sudden, it, it seemed like that was, this, um, there must have been running light or something like that. It, it didn't fit the pattern, but actually that was the actual pattern. That, that was, the, the, that was the, the, the reality. And the other, the other thing was just as Bridgestone were, were developing their compounds to suit the, the, new, the new car. Yeah, Rubens Barrichello, I think, has spoken about that test. It was Imola, and I think he—you mentioned about you know were they running under weight? Uh, I think Rubens has said that he came in from that run saying you must have left the ballast out or something like that. He, he could not believe how good it was. Uh, so obviously now we know why the car switched on at that test. One of the major stories in F1 at this time was the news that the F1 Commission had rejected a mid-season change to the qualifying format. In 2004, we still had single lap qualifying, but it was two sessions effectively back to back with the first session setting the order for the second one that set the grid. But this was considered too long and too boring. So a proposal had been made to switch to two 20 minute sessions that were a free for all. Bernie Eccleston blamed the FIA for the change not going through, adding that qualifying would stay just as boring as it was before. McLaren boss Ron Dennis said that FIA president Max Mosley had swayed some of the teams who were initially in favour of it by Max saying he didn't want the format to come in. And Max scared some of the slower teams by saying the 107% cutoff would come back too. Mosley didn't admit to going against the new proposal, but he said there was a feeling within the F1 commission that the new idea was too similar to the previous one hour format that was used until the end of 2002 and that F1 needed something a bit more radical. 
Scott, what do you think of that proposal for two 20-minute sessions? I think it was aggregate times as well. Would that have been an improvement on this back-to-back one-shot qualifying that we had in 2004? Uh, I don't think it, it would have. Um, it kind of feels like the two 20-minute sessions, especially with aggregate times, for me anyway, brings together actually like the worst of the different qualifying sessions we've had o- over the years. I think there's there's still obviously jeopardy in it, it, it and you could argue there's twice the jeopardy because you have to nail the lap on two different occasions. But I, I, I'm not sure. I'd be actually interested to know if I'm an outlier on this because <laughs> I d- genuinely have no idea if you two will agree with me. But I never really liked um, that one-by-one one-shot qualifying because some elements of it were great again like the jeopardy of a driver only getting that one chance is is superb but I generally dislike it because for me it's an example of a slightly universal folly that more is better because one of the arguments that because it crops up every now and again um one of the arguments I always see is that it's great for track action. You know, guarantee you always have cars on track. And also um, you're able to compare drivers because you can see everything that each indivi- individual driver does. But there's two things there for me. One is that I think that's nonsense because unless it was the same onboard shot of the entire lap, the comparisons would still be very limited. Um, and I think that would be quite boring if you just watched 40 minutes of onboards. Uh, and two, I just honestly wouldn't care uh, I why do I need to see every qualifying lap of Minardi does in 2004 um, as a general fan I I just don't I, I don't want to spend an hour evenly distributing my attention across every car and I know from years of data now working in motorsport journalism that fans don't either there is a heavy bias towards different teams certain teams top teams so that's where the emphasis goes so all that said about one shot qualifying, I don't think the proposal for two 20-minute sessions would have been any better. Bit of recency bias here, maybe, but I quite like the current system. It isn't perfect. That There are ways to improve it. But I do like the balance because there is jeopardy. Um, but if you are really obsessed with tracking the performance of every runner, you can fill your boots by watching the Q1 tuggers drive around on their opening runs while everyone else is in the pits. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good point about the interest, the interest level. I really liked the idea of one shot qualifying the novelty from a, a full one hour spectacle, as you said, did wear off after a while. Like you felt like you were just waiting for the good people to run, but maybe the solution there is a super pole session where, you know, just the top guys do a one shot at the end. Um, because I do like the idea that you, you had to nail it on one lap. And if you, if people made a mistake, you got a slightly mixed up grid rather than another go at it. Um, but this this uh, was a busy weekend for Max Mosley. We're not done with Max uh, <laughs> at all yet. The next thing on his agenda was to put pressure on the teams to come up with new rules to slow the cars down. There were concerns after big accidents for Felipe Massa in Canada, Ralph Schumacher at Indianapolis, that F1 cars were now dangerously fast. Mosley had a plan to slow the cars down significantly for 2008 when the FIA would be free to do so without the teams being able to block it, but he wanted it done much sooner on the grounds of safety. Mosley said the faster the cars go, the greater the possibility that someone will be hurt or killed. We now feel that probability is too high. We are at the limit. If we go on like this, someone will get hurt. The drivers were largely... In favour of reducing speeds, Michael Schumacher said there could be another death if, if speeds are not cut, and he called for drastic steps to slow the cars down. Jano Trulli said the cars should be slowed down by four seconds a lap, 
while Olivier Panis was against the idea, saying F1 needs to have quicker cars because that's why we're here. And he said if he ever felt F1 cars had become too quick, he would just stay at home. Mark, you were seeing these 2004 cars up close in action. And obviously until we had new rules in 2017 to speed the cars up again and break a load of records, these cars held lap records for a long time. But do you think they had become too fast by that point? I didn't get that visceral sense standing trackside watching them. They looked fantastic, looked spectacular. Um, but it didn't look any more hazardous really than than cars now. I mean, we've had a little bit of uh, sort of development in, in safety, barrier technology and, and stuff like that and better understanding of uh, runoff areas and curb designs, things like that. But it, it generally, it, it's not. It wasn't that different to to modern day you didn't get the sense watching them thinking oh this is dangerous but it was i think we'd got probably approaching the point where um cornering speeds and entry speeds are such that if something did go wrong the impact speeds were were getting to the stage where uh, you're looking at possible internal injuries so that the cars have been made incredibly impact resistant with all the crash testing development um, but you can only go so far with that. Uh, as you increase the speed, the, the 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 danger becomes sort of in internal injuries from the impact forces, which of course square with the speed. And yeah, that, you you didn't get the sense of that looking at them. But if you, I guess if you looked at the data and the science behind it, you might come to that conclusion. That's a good point, actually. It was not so much that the cars were dangerous to drive, but they were potentially going too fast in the event of car failures, which obviously the FIA has to manage against. So to speed up the process for changes, the World Motorsport Council decided to use Article 7.5 of the Concord Agreement, which gave the teams two months to come up with measures of their own to slow the cars down on safety grounds. If the teams couldn't agree on a rules package in that time, then the FIA could present three proposals of its own for the teams to choose from. If they still couldn't agree on one of those proposals, then the FIA could pick one and enforce its own rules in October to come into force the following year. Mosley said in a press conference at the French Grand Prix that he didn't expect the teams to reach the required majority of eight in agreement, uh, but he stressed that it was clear to the teams that if they didn't agree on a proposal themselves, the FIA would take action. Mosley said, It's dramatic, but they are absolutely necessary measures, and once they are done, Formula One will be on a sensible course. He also said that reducing the performance of the cars would improve the racing. We won't go into detail here with how the rest of this process played out later in 2004. We did cover it a bit in our uh, Ferrari 2005 episode back in Series 1 where we explained why they were so <laughs> rubbish that year. It's safe to say the teams never agreed. Of course they didn't. The FIA then picked one of its three options that seemed to have the most support from the teams and that included aerodynamic changes, long-life tyres and a switch to V8 engines that was pushed back to 2006. Scott, you spend much of your time as an F1 journalist today dealing with um, FIA aggro, let's call it that. <laughs> what did you make of this? Uh, I was going to say handling, but perhaps it's forcing through of rule changes from Max Mosley. Was this too strong a stance for the FIA to take? Well, I think the, the, the good thing with it is, is that there was a degree of logic uh, underpinning it. Uh, you know, I, I, I adore this era of F1 uh, is probably because I, I fell in love with it when I was younger. So there's inevitably a, a sort of romanticised view of it. 
But if we and if we take the first couple of stints of the race we're going to discuss here, Alonso Schumacher, lovely looking, great sounding, nimble looking cars being pushed super hard uh, in short bursts of you know sprint stints. This this era was a lot of what F one should be at, at its peak. Um, but we can't pretend that the racing was ever stunning. Um, so I totally get the logic behind prioritizing things like longer braking zones and lower cornering speeds and removing fuel stops so that the action theoretically moves away from the pit lane and onto the racetrack. And now this might have been a too heavy handed way to try and achieve that. But at a time when teams and manufacturers were quite aggressive politically, then maybe it had to be this way because nothing this divisive was ever going to get done by committee and as the regulator the governing body is entitled to be forceful because the teams are only going to pursue what's in their interest to just build the fastest cars they don't have the interest of f1 as the number one priority so there are a few different things there that the faa is balancing up there was an extra bit of the mosley quote that you mentioned um which was engines will be cheaper with less power cars will be slower aerodynamics will come under control and tyres will be much harder. And I know to a lot of people that sounds absolutely awful. I was actually going to be slightly complimentary and say it sounds a bit like Formula E. But I realise this is a podcast about V10s. I'm already on a warning this season for some anti-Villeneuve comments, so I'm going to bite my tongue and leave it there. (laughs) Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Within the debate over safety, bosses at Renault were pushing for F1 to consider the quality of the show in any rule changes as well. This wasn't just coming from Renault team boss Flavio Briatore, who who always banged this drum. And uh, he said, F1 never tries to suit the spectators, and the more technology you have, the less show you have from the drivers. But even Pat Simmons on the engineering side of the team agreed with him. Simmons said F1 was at a watershed moment, and it must also focus on improving the show alongside safety. Simmons, who of course uh, in the modern era is known for working for F1 itself and helping set the rules, uh, he said... With all the talk of cost savings, it must be remembered that generating income by providing the public with spectacular racing is just as important. Mark, I've got a a two-part question for you, really. Firstly, did F1 need to try to improve the show back in 2004? But also, were you surprised to hear someone like Pat, who came from a pure engineering background, pushing for F1 to improve the spectacle? Um, I think it needed to always be uh, aware of the the need to uh, think about what show it it was transmitting. And 
it was very easy for F1 to just be, um, you leave it to the engineers and, and they'll come up with ever cleverer ways of making the cars go faster and faster and faster. And that's fantastic. But it does need to be checked every now and again. And that's, you know, that that's that, that process, I think, that part of the process was, was good. I think that was, and as Scott said, it does inevitably lead to some conflict because there is a, an inherent conflict of interest there. And the way it has to be done, it has to be quite forceful. Um, but in terms of uh, whether it was surprising from Pat, it, it was when you first heard it. But the better you got to know Pat, the more you realised he was a, he was actually a guy with, although an engineer, he was someone with a, a great vision and, and could look, sort of stand above the picture and, and, and look at it from higher up. And he, he did get it quite, you know, he, he did get it quite well, what the, the, the balancing factors had to be. And of course, you know, we've seen that subsequently in his, his career and he's, he's taken on the, those roles that oversee that blend of engineering and entertainment. And that's, that's, what he's, um, that's where his big skill set lies. Yeah, I think this is good proof that he's well suited to roles like that. We'll go back to Max Mosley one more time. As 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 ever in the 2000s, Max was <laughs> all over the news. He announced in this week, though, that he was stepping down as FIA president at the end of 2004, which was a year early than, uh, earlier than the end of his term was supposed to be. Mosley explained at the French Grand Prix that he no longer found it interesting to sit in long meetings, particularly with F1 and World Rally Championship teams, And he said, people often agree things and then they go away after the meeting and change their minds completely. And that means you've wasted a day. He said he had achieved everything he wanted to in the role and that you shouldn't stay in a job as important as the FIA if it doesn't really fascinate you. When asked why he wasn't going to stay on to the end of his term in 2005, he said it would just mean another year of fairly mundane things and that to hang on is a mistake. Mosley expanded on this. In his book, years later, saying that a particularly irritating meeting of the F1 Commission in May 2004 had convinced him to stop. He said he was beginning to tire of trying to solve other people's problems, working under considerable pressure and constantly facing fierce opposition from the very people I was trying to help. Back to the French Grand Prix, Mosley said he wouldn't go back on his decision because... I'm not an F1 team principal, so I don't change my mind every few minutes. But in the end, not only was he convinced to stay on until the end of 2005 because there was no suitable replacement, but when his preferred replacement, Jean Tot, accepted a promotion within Ferrari and couldn't take over from Max, Max ended up having to do another term anyway. Max said in his book that this was a major mistake and that he should have walked away in 2005 and left it up to the FIA to find a successor. Mark, Max also said in his book that uh, F1 and the rest of motorsport needed someone fresh by this point. Would it have been better if he had just walked away at the end of 2005? I don't know, because it's such a, a potentially yeah. chaotic situation. Um, with his, it was a stitch up of a question. I yeah, it, it was such a, a combustible mix always with him. Bernie Eccleston and the team principals such as Flavio and Ron Dennis and John Dott. The, the uh, alignments of the interests were just always floating, like shifting sands. So to try and predict what would happen if you just took one of those things out of the equation is, is almost impossible. It's just, it's just random. And um, when he says that he was, you know, he, he wanted to stop, you, never, you could never be sure, no matter how much 
logical sense what he was saying um, made, you could never be sure if he really meant it or if it was part of an agenda. And he was just, you know, you, you always felt right. What's he really doing? When he's saying this, you're looking around to see what else is going on. What's he really, where's he, where's he really trying to get to? So it was very difficult to take him seriously when he was saying, right, I'm going to stop. With it. And it was even more difficult, of course, when he, when he didn't then stop. And so... <laughs> Yeah, how how would it have how would it have worked out with um, if 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 Max had walked away and then John had come in? Um, I think we would have still had a big conflict between the manufacturers and the FIA. Um, John uh, would have been more consensual in his approach, and it might not have got to the stage where there was uh, a threatened split in the championship for two thousand and nine. But yeah, who knows? It, it's such a combustible mix of personalities, uh, and uh, that was that was part of why F one was so fantastic. Then it was, uh, you know, it was it was so unpredictable, and uh, you you never knew where the next drama was coming from. We've got a bit of that now, actually, but it was really a, a, a very rich mix back then. I was going to say that actually, you you mentioned in that at the very end tallies exactly what I was thinking as you were speaking through that which is like could you imagine F1 it's almost like the episode of the the Simpsons can you imagine a world without lawyers and everyone's just really happy and peaceful and everyone's just sort of like holding hands and it's just perfect who wants that no one wants that we're 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 here for the toxicity a lot of the time as long as it's like entertaining toxicity that is what F1's about yeah my my first thought was uh, imagine how few, how, how much the number of break, threatened breakaways would have been reduced, uh, the number of team groups or manufacturer groups. Think of all the acronyms we wouldn't have had if, <laughs> uh, if, if F1 had been much calmer politically <laughs> at this point. But let's, uh, let's get away from, from politics and move into F1's midfield. In the run-up to Manny Corr, Peter Sauber felt compelled to leap to the defence of his team, which was being criticised for not doing a better job, given it had Ferrari's engine and gearbox and a car that on the surface looked very similar to Ferrari's. Sauber was sixth in the Constructors' Championship at this point, although this seemed a strange time for the team to be coming under fire, as over the previous five races it was the fourth best team, having outscored Williams and McLaren. Sauber said that aero was more important than the engine and gearbox when it came to car performance and that the team was only just starting to make gains in that area. Now its new wind tunnel, which was paid for by releasing Kimi Raikkonen to McLaren at the end of 2001, was now in operation. Peter Sauber said that any comparison with Ferrari was unfair given the difference in resources between the two teams and he added, above all, they've got Michael Schumacher. He said the question of why Ferrari was so far ahead of everybody else should be posed to the teams having entered the season with the goal of winning the championship and that all things considered, Sauber had more points than it did at this time last year so the team could be highly satisfied with its results. Scott, this was a, a punchy defence from Peter Sauber who wasn't necessarily known for that. Was it unfair for Sauber to be criticised just because at this point people were kind of looking at them as a, as a blue Ferrari? Yeah, I think it was. Like, with the benefit of hindsight, it seems particularly silly to be criticising a team that was beating the likes of Toyota and Jaguar in, in the championship with their budgets. Uh, 
I imagine it was also very easy to have that view at the time as well, though. But there is something specifically I wanted to say on this. Before I do, I want to throw a question back to the two of you. And I'm not. this is not a trick question. I'm not trying to stitch you up with this. Um, because your research on this, Glenn, and is obviously, it's usually uh, flawless. And Mark, you were there at the time. So who was criticising Sauber? Because I really wanted to try and find out. So I tried to do a little bit of online research. I found the Peter Sauber interview in which, so not questioning that at all. Who was criticising them? Do, do you know or who do you think it was? Because I have a theory. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I don't remember them being criticised, but there you go. It was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, if, if, I, if I had to guess, I would say it's probably been some sort of media opinion or it's been a, he's heard it on a tv commentary and he's gone oh i'm gonna get angry at this and yell at some clouds so what's your theory okay so i wouldn't be surprised if it was petty griping maybe in private who's petty of, griping very good from teams with bigger budgets needing to find ways to disguise their own failings and deflect attention so instead of people asking them why they were failing to beat a little independent team like Salba, they tried to shift the narrative towards why isn't Salba doing any better they, they should it's not us failing to beat them they should actually be miles clear of us we're doing well just to even be in contention because that is the kind of um sort of scared paranoid man like manufacturer pointless um maneuvering that i can absolutely um, imagine and the reason i have that theory is because it sounds a little bit like that era's version of complaints like we have with ferrari and haas now when the team does well they get criticized for being a copy when they do badly they're forgotten about they're they're irrelevant so i just can't shake the feeling that there, there must have been an element of just Peter Sauber being riled up by someone that was just trying to use his team as a means of deflecting attention away from their own underperformance. So you think it was Toyota? <laughs> <laughs> we cracked it. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I, I think it did take a lot to get Peter Sauber riled up. So clearly something had, uh, had got under his skin at this point. So uh, let's talk about some big teams that Sauber are outperforming then. Uh, Williams and McLaren. Uh, we'll start with Williams. Test driver Mark Genet was drafted in to replace Ralph Schumacher, who'd suffered two spinal fractures in a massive accident at Indianapolis. Genet said that he hoped that getting the nod over Williams' other test driver, Antonio Pizzonia, meant that Mark was high up the list to land a race drive for 2005. And he also dismissed rumours that out-of-work Jacques Villeneuve was in the running to stand in for Ralph. So that's Jacques mentioned in this episode. <laughs> Ralph was expected to be out for three months but Williams said it would review Genet's position on a race-by-race -race basis. Mark, um, Mark, Genet, qualified <laughs> uh, a tenth off Juan Pablo Montoya in France, but he slumped from eighth to tenth in the race, and he only got one more shot before Williams swapped him with Pizzonia. Was, was this Williams' drive just a bit beyond him? Um, ultimately, yeah, I think he probably could have done with a bit more preparation to, you know, to really maximise the opportunity. Um, I don't think he was up the absolute front rank of, of F1 drivers. And I don't think it was a case of, it was a great lost talent that didn't get a, a proper opportunity. I think um, Pizzonia was actually a more intriguing um, prospect in that at his best, he was incredibly fast. Um John Booth, who ran Pizzonia in Formula Renault, and Kimi Raikkonen, and Lewis Hamilton, uh, still reckons Pizzonia is the fastest driver he's ever seen. But that didn't translate to F1. And, and there, there was something which he, he was, wasn't accessing his potential. 
in F1 at all. And the, the, I, I think it was, I think Williams had become frustrated at this. Um, and so, yeah, they, they give they gave Mark a run. But I, I don't think it was ever with a serious consideration of um, he was going to be their, their long-term race driver. McLaren was in the news for, should we say, more upbeat reasons than having an injured driver. As heading into France, it had its B-spec car ready to replace the dreadful MP4-19 that had proved off the pace and unreliable up to this point. We talked about this a bit in our first series when we covered the unraced MP4-18 of 2003 and how legendary designer Adrian Newey said the 19 for 2004 was just that flawed car with a new nameplate on it. At the end of that episode, we explained how even once Newey had identified the main faults with his radical design, he was outvoted within McLaren's technical team, so he didn't get his wish to produce a reworked chassis for 2004. And it was only once the car started racing and was clearly dreadful that McLaren boss Ron Dennis let him come up with a B-spec. Newey wrote in his book that by the time he got the OK to redo the car, there wasn't time to change the cooling system, so he wasn't able to create the full package he'd pitched for in September of 2003, but he was able to produce a new monocoque, revised aero package and new suspension. Our very own Mark Hughes uh, spoke to Newey for a feature about the car that ran in Autosport magazine in this week. And in that, Mark, you wrote, uh, by Newey's own admission, it still doesn't have the weight distribution he would like. The 19B represents an aerodynamic band-aid to a problem that began a long time ago and which has accumulated ever since. So, Mark, tell us, how significant were the changes for the B-Spec car, even if Adrian didn't get to do everything he wanted? And how impressive was it that Newey and McLaren were able to pull all of this off in the middle of a season? Yeah, I mean that was very impressive. It was it, 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 McLaren at, the, at that time was um, a, a top resource team. You know, we we think of McLaren now as an independent without the resources of the the top three teams. It back then absolutely was a top team and and could could do stuff like that. And it was deeply impressive. And though they had so many talented people there, and it went all all through the organisation. But um, it was at, at the top at Adrian's level. He, he was a bit constricted. And this this was a perfect case study illustrating that because what he'd pitched for was essentially the car that they came up with the the, the following season, and uh, which was you know a great car. And for '04, it was yeah. I mean they they'd got they'd got the the aero more um, forward biased, and that was really what what was the main aero shortfall of the original car, and. It, it, but it, as he said, he, he had to retain the existing cooling architecture because it was that would have been just too big a job to. You know, that's effectively doing a brand new car then, um, and that was essentially what was being planned for um, two thousand and five. So yes, it was it was low, there was low hanging fruit there, and the frustration for Adrian was he could see that months ago, and had had his sort of his collar felt and been restrained from doing that. I guess because they'd lost a little bit of trust in him because of the the the, the MP418, which hadn't raced, and so they felt, are we going off in the wrong direction here? The, you know, the management felt that, and I, I'm th- pretty sure Adrian resented that, and it was probably a big part of of why long term um, didn't feel that his home was going to be McLaren. He was already thinking of wh- where he might want to be going next. 
The car made a reasonable impression in France without necessarily hinting at how competitive it would be for the rest of the season. David Coulthard qualified third, as we mentioned at the start of the show, while Kimi Raikkonen was ninth after making a mistake on his uh, one-shot qualifying attempt. And in the race, they finished sixth and seventh. By McLaren's 2004 standards, it was still a decent improvement and Coulthard pointed out that while they were half a minute down on the winner with the old car, they'd have probably been lapped. Coulthard said the 19B was tricky to drive, but he was willing to put up with that because it was capable of doing a lap time. And McLaren promised there were more developments coming, which would make it more competitive. Team boss Ron Dennis said, It might not be apparent from our finishing positions, but the MP4 19B is definitely a significant step in the right direction. The results don't really represent the pace we've achieved. We want to win some races. That is the objective. We know that that car did win a race in the end, Scott, but based on the debut weekend for it, finishing 6th and 7th, did talk of race wins seem a bit optimistic from McLaren at this point? I, th- I think it, it did, um, especially if you only looked at it with that that single factor of how they performed that weekend. Um, if you then combined that with the stage of the season we were at and how many races were left and how little time there was to, you know, get absolutely everything out of the package and further improve it and refine it, then it looks even less likely. Um, There was another similar quote from Dennis where I think he said it would be wrong to say they will win, but that the potential's there. Um, Even with that caveat, still seems a stretch on the evidence of Magnacore alone. Um, There are sort of two sides to this. Um, There's a degree of low-hanging fruit here, obviously. Um, I think... Easy is the wrong word, but in this in in this case, I think context takes care of it. It's probably fairly easy to find initial chunks improving a car that was as flawed as as this one was before. Slashing your deficit from let's say a second a lap to half a second a lap or three or four tenths a lap is one thing, but finding those missing final tenths they're the ones that are always impossibly difficult to find across any era of F1. If the rest of the season was rerun in the circumstances of the French Grand Prix, it's difficult to see why McLaren would be so confident that they could find half a minute in race time because that is still such a huge amount. But obviously McLaren was looking at this with the benefit of a lot more information than just what it had seen on track in France in isolation. So it it wasn't just a decent debut. There were other developments in the pipeline there is the chance to further understand the new package. Hopefully from that you get compound gains over the rest of the year. But I think tapping into a little bit of what Mark was saying about Nui, I think given how convinced he was that significant changes would yield significant benefits, McLaren must have been relieved and encouraged to then see this bear instant fruit with a step forward in France. So if he was then talking positively about what this car could be capable of, then I can see why others would believe him. It's just a case of why did you only start believing him then? If they'd just listened to him sooner, it would have been a very different season for McLaren. One thing we knew about McLaren's longer-term prospects were that this was going to be Coulthard's last season at the team and his future was the subject of much speculation by the time of the French Grand Prix. There were rumours of talks with Jaguar, which Coulthard said in his book were true, and of course that's the team he ended up at when Red Bull took it over in the winter. But elsewhere, he wasn't always being shown much love, or perhaps we should say respect. 
Patrick Head was asked if Williams would be interested in taking Coulthard back, and Patrick said that while Coulthard had put in some stunning performances, he'd often appeared very mediocre at the next race, and Head felt the stunning performances were occurring less often now. Coulthard said in his book that he approached every team on the grid, even speaking to Ferrari about a possible test driver role. He said some teams were very respectful and declined with grace, but he singled out Toyota as being totally dismissive. DC wrote, uh, there was a pure arrogance from the management who believed that they had the best two drivers in the world, which I would suggest no one in the paddock agreed with. I'm not saying I am the best in the world, but I might command a little more respect than I was afforded. So Mark, looking at the treatment DC got there in private from Toyota and in public from Williams, were they being a little harsh on him here by 2004? Yeah, I think he'd, um, he'd done enough to command respect. He was not the top absolute best driver in the, in the field, but he was um, someone who'd proven he could regularly win Grand Prix if you give him the right car and even become a title contender. So, yeah, that, that should should automatically generate respect, um, regardless of whether you think he had the last few tenths within him, regardless of whether you think he was the right fit for your team. Yes, absolutely. I think he was right to be uh, a little bit irked at the uh, uh, lack of respect. Yeah, and let's face it, Toyota ended up with Raul Schumacher and Jarno Trilli, who were both quick on their day, but that's kind of, they're both of a similar mould uh, to DC, it must be said. Uh, but let's finally get into the race. Uh, Alonso, Fernando Alonso had taken pole position at Renault's home race, so that was a big deal. And at the start, he held on to the lead as he and Schumacher charged away at the front, as Scott mentioned earlier. They absolutely left everyone else behind. Things were looking pretty good for Renault when Schumacher stopped on lap 11, which was three laps before Alonso. And Alonso retained the lead after those first stops. The pattern appeared to be repeating itself for the second stops, with Schumacher pitting first on lap 29 and Alonso coming in three laps later. But this time, the short-fueled Ferrari had jumped the Renault. And these second stops were where Ferrari changed the race. Schumacher was back in for his third stop on lap 42, which was just 10 laps after Alonso's second stop. When the Renault pit wall spotted that Schumacher had short-fueled again, they knew he would be making a fourth stop. Meanwhile, all the earlier-than-expected stops for Alonso meant he was lumbered with a heavy car for that final stint of his three-stop uh, three race. So while Schumacher was building a gap to make his fourth stop, Alonso was slow and powerless to respond. We'll come to Ferrari's side of this in a moment, but first let's look at what the Renault camp thought of it. Alonso said he didn't understand what was going on and he felt that Renault had adjusted its pit stop timings in reaction to Schumacher stopping earlier than he expected each time as Renault was trying to protect its track position. Pat Simmons said Renault quickly worked out that Ferrari were going to four stop and the second half, as the second half of the race was playing out, he could tell already that Alonso wasn't going to get into the window to be ahead once Schumacher stopped for a fourth time. Mark, you had to analyse this race at the time. Was there anything Renault could have done here? Could they have spotted the four-stop plan soon enough to have countered it in any way? You, can't, you can only do it in hindsight. Um, and yeah, if they had just stuck to their original plan, it might have been possible. But the danger was always track position, as, as Fernando said. And the problem was that the Ferrari was inherently a faster car. The Renault was faster 
at Magna Coeur on that track surface with those tyres because the, the Bridgestones just didn't come up to temperature quickly enough and was a quicker car at the beginning of the stint. But over a stint, if you just had them both in isolation, the Ferrari was way quicker and it just it was just its normal performance pattern between the two cars would sort of even out. Um, but if you couldn't get track position, um, that, that was you know that was that was irrelevant so ferrari's whole strategy was we think we might be out qualified here because of the the tire characteristics and how, how that surface works uh, the heat degradation was enormous on that surface it was um usually in the refueling era you couldn't undercut you would overcut because you, you'd, you'd stay out with a lighter car and that would that would give you more lap time than the new tires would buy you but such was the degradation rate it uh, Magna Coeur that the undercut would work because the new tyres were um, so much faster so it was always about that tricky balance Could how do you how do you still retain track position but keep your options open for when, when you when you stopped later on and Ferrari when you look at it how they made that four stop work was really just by having a much faster car and it was it was it was it, it the the way it happened disguised that but as soon as he got that free air as soon as he got out i think from the second stops um ahead then it was all the, the game was on and they'd committed to the fourth stop at the second stop the at the first the, they did the first stop early enough so that a fourth stop could still be accomplished if need be but i think michael hit a little bit of traffic on his in lap and it, it wasn't quite enough and so it's still they had that option there but they weren't sticking to it necessarily it was only at the second stops when he got the track position thought right let's do it and it was it, it was a plan conceived by um Luca Baldazzeri but you you he talked a lot with Ross Braun about it and so it was always there as an option and in, in in the back pocket almost and it was at the second stops that Ross said yeah let's do it let's go and that's when you saw the, the the real difference in performance. And Mike, Michael was able to, in that um, penultimate stint before his fourth stop, he, I think he needed 25 seconds and he was easily accomplished. He came out still after the final stop, eight seconds in the lead. So it was, yeah, it, it made it look as if Renault had been mugged strategically, but actually all that had happened was they'd held on with a slower car for a, a long time but ultimately couldn't couldn't contain it. So we mentioned Baldazzeri there, and, and Ross Braun was quick to give him the credit after the race. Uh, Baldazzeri's logic was that the short pit lane at Manicourt meant the time loss for stopping was minimal, even with a reduced pit lane speed limit. Ferrari worked out that a four-stopper was capable of producing the same race time as a three-stopper, but as Mark explained brilliantly there, it had the advantage of getting you off-sequence with a car you were stuck behind, so Schumacher could then run in clear air rather than having to pass Alonso on track. And uh, Scott mentioned refuelling earlier. One of the big reasons I didn't like refuelling was that you could do your overtaking in the pit lane, not on the track. Argument for another time. Braun said Ferrari kept the four-stopper in mind as a joker and Schumacher said that it was a low-risk gamble because he and Alonso were so far ahead of the rest of the pack that even if it didn't work, he'd still be second. So there was very little to lose. Scott, what did you what did you make of this? Was it another Ferrari pit wall masterstroke? Or as Mark kind of hinted at, was this an example of the sort of thing you can pull off when you have a clear performance advantage over everybody? 
Yeah, I, so I think it shows um, that mix of confidence, speed, and strategic flexibility that Ferrari had. And you, I think you need all of those factors to combine if you're actually going to um, do this kind of thing. So basically, you can. It's always going to look spectacular if you pull this this sort of thing off. Like that, they. If you do the force stop and win, there is no way you do that and you don't look like a hero in in some way, whether it's your car performance or just the strategic brilliance behind it. But obviously, there it's multiple factors feeding into it. The the flexibility that I point out, I think is important because when when I was trying to get my head around this, I rewatched the race, I rewatched the how it played out, and obviously there's a key moment where um Schumacher comes in I think it's the, the the second stop that he makes Alonso stays out I think for two full laps afterwards and the car's all over the place it looks awful it's so it, it's clear you can see it hemorrhaging lap time and so so there really isn't anything that that Renault can do in terms of like for like pace but I was trying to understand exactly where they were on strategy I've reread all the things they said on the Saturday and then after the race sort of justifying it and the thing that confuses me a little bit is um because Alonso was talking about, oh, you know, they reacted to protect protect, protect track position and, and all of this. But actually, when Alonso stops is almost exactly what Simmons projects on Saturday as the the, the laps for the, for the free stoppers. So either Simmons is just lying on the Saturday to just kind of misguide, misdirect people, which is entirely possible, or... Renault were always going to bake themselves, bake in, um, you know, a long final stint. Probably, if that is the case, because of this emphasis on track position. So it's a case of, can we hang on enough to just stay in front? But the problem is when you're up against that combination of Schumacher and Ferrari, with that advantage that those key factors give you, hanging on just just wasn't uh, wasn't an option. The, the Ferrari clearly looked very good. The tyres seemed to be holding on really well. Like I said, the Renault was moving around so badly on its final laps of every stint that it was just crying compared to the Ferrari. And Schumacher was on it. So all of that just gives you the confidence you can pull off something bold like this when you decide there is nothing to lose. lose and especially when you think an on-track move isn't likely. It becomes low risk, high reward. And when you've got all those factors in your favour, you can actually execute it. Yeah, I think Mark's report at the time did mention that it was going to be a longer final stint, but it wasn't meant to be as long as it was. They did kind of get dragged into bringing those stops a little bit earlier and just, yeah, too too loaded up and too slow um, at the end. Uh, so I do always sympathise when, when a, a slower car gets done on strategy, there's an element of sympathy, even today, um, that ultimately you have one hand tied behind your back when you're, you're fighting a strategic game against a faster car. But there was more joy for Ferrari and pain for Renault on the last lap of the race. Uh, after hounding Jano Trulli for third throughout the final stint, Rubens Barrichello forced the Renault driver into a small mistake three corners from home. That compromised Trulli's uh, exit and run down to the penultimate corner and he did a dreadful job of defending the position, leaving the door open for Barrichello to dive down the inside to steal third place. Trulli accepted that he made an error in leaving the door open for Barrichello and he said he was gutted to throw away a podium finish. He said he'd been struggling with traction and oversteer in the final stint, which would have contributed to his poor run off the previous corner. And he said he was dejected, and all I feel is disappointment. He said that once Barrichello had made the move, Trulli felt he had two choices, either try turning in and risking a collision, or accept that he'd made a mistake and give up the place. 
Barrichello said that without Trulli's error off the previous corner, he'd have never got a run, the run that he needed. And because he didn't want to throw away his fourth place after starting 10th, he'd committed 85% to the move initially. And then when he realised it was on, he committed another 20% to take his attempt to 105%. Good maths there from Rubens. So, Scott, you said you were wound up about this. Assess it for us. Uh, simply put, not Yano Trulli's finest moment. Uh, yeah, I like the fact that it became a statistically impossible attempted overtake from Rubens. <laughs> that, just, that shows just how bad the job truly did. It required an overtake attempt that just is not possible um, to, to pull off. I think uh, Martin Brundle said it best, not in the initial... Um, not in the initial bit of commentary around it because it's quite funny actually. If you go back, if you if anyone watches the race, maybe, maybe they'll remember this. Um, everyone's expecting truly to come round on the podium, so it's like the race is being called by by commentary and with the people on the team on, on the pit wall, it, just purely expecting truly to come round in third. And then there is just total shock all round when Rubens because it cuts suddenly to Rubens diving down the inside and. Um, they review it on a replay, I think, just as we're waiting for the podium ceremony. And Brundle just says it perfectly. He says, Trulli's thinking about what he's going to say in the press conference. He's asleep. And he says that Trulli's sleeping like two or three times. You can tell it It really, really annoyed Martin to see another, like to see a top driver in such a position do such a bad job of defending a podium position. I mean, Barrichello was clearly spooking him. Um, I noticed actually Trulli was starting to move offline slightly in the last couple of laps. It's all he's like, he's like hedging his bets, just trying to fend off any potential lunge from Rubens. It's not it's not even moving into the middle of the road. It, it's just but there's clearly you can see Rubens is in his head. It, Trulli's not driving a normal line. He's defending um, a bit of fresh air. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I think it's just bad. It was bad management from Trulli going into the end anyway. And then honestly, just that, how that played out, I just think it was pretty embarrassing. I, I remember getting verbally pelted by my dad a couple of times in karting for carelessly failing to cover the inside line. So I was and remain genuinely stunned that an F1 driver could make that kind of mistake. He switched off, he thought he was safe and he got punished for it. Understandably, Trulli's mistake went down terribly within Renault. Flavio Briatore said a podium cannot be lost this way. Although he claimed that he had not given Trulli a hard time over it in private because Trulli was big enough to realise the error he's made. Pat Simmons, who wasn't usually one to get too emotional, he was interviewed by ITV's Ted Kravitz straight after the race, so I don't think he'd cooled down yet. And he said he couldn't understand why Trulli left the door completely open and he said it was unbelievable. Even Renault technical director Bob Bell spoke on it, saying Trulli would have been a hero if he'd held off Barrichello for third, that he'd been under pressure from Barrichello and Jensen Button for the whole race. But Bell added, he learned one of the harshest lessons F1 has to offer, that you are punished for every mistake, no matter how small. Trulli's form fell off a cliff after this. He didn't score a point again all season and he was let go by Renault before the end of the year. Trulli has since said that there were tensions behind the scenes with Briatore already by this stage as they were due to renew their personal management contract after 10 years of working together. But by then Trulli felt he was no longer part of Briatore's plans as the focus was now on building Fernando Alonso as the next superstar. As we mentioned uh, in our Spa 2004 episode, truly told the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast about this. With Flavio, once there was no harmony anymore and I was not his driver on the contract side, he had no more interest in me. 
Mark, this moment is often cited as the reason the truly Renault relationship collapsed. And lots of people who, who gave us their memory said this was the moment that led to truly exiting the team. Was this the catalyst or was it going to go wrong there even without this error? There was not a very good um, relationship between Jarno and Flavio even before this. And um, I think Jarno felt that in terms of his future, in terms of trying to make that final step, it, this wasn't going to be where it, where it was going to be um, because Flavio's relationship with Fernando was extremely close because Jarno had refused to be part of Flavio's management under, under Flavio's management. Um, and he just felt that there's no way I'm going to be allowed to, to shine here. And so he was already thinking, right, where else can I go? Where can I make the the move that's going to change my career trajectory. And um, it turned out it wasn't higher. It turned out that, that he only ever got that one Grand Prix win in 2004 Monaco. But at that time, it was, you know, I, th I can follow the logic of Jano wanting to be out and Flavio feeling that, oh, this is, every, everything's going to be based around Fernando now and we just need a, a low-maintenance um, support driver and Jano's not, being very low maintenance, so I'm not very interested. It was that that sort of relationship, and um, yeah, he was he, he left before even the end of the season, and uh, that was it. Really, the relationship was already damaged. Yeah, and, and to be fair, even Trulli has said that Flavio did back the right horse in getting uh, behind Alonso, and uh, Renault replaced Yano. Uh, eventually, we'll ignore the Villeneuve blip. Uh, Renault replaced Yano with another driver who liked defending fresh air and then getting mugged at the end of a Grand Prix in Giancarlo Fisichella. But uh, we've already covered that race in the past. That's it for France 2004. Thanks to Scott and to Mark for joining us for this one. Next time, we're making our second detour of the series into the V8 era and heading to the 2009 Belgian Grand Prix where Giancarlo Fisichella took a shock pole position for Force India, but he was denied a victory by spa specialist Kimi Raikkonen, who spared Ferrari's blushes by claiming a win in an otherwise forgettable season for the prancing horse. Athletic.